Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number three of The Shaping of Middle-Earth as we continue with our discussion of the Quinta, which I am just loving more and more. Uh, I've forgotten how much I loved the Quinta. I might never have loved the Quinta as much as I love it now. Uh, this, has been, this has been really cool. Um, I want to... Okay, all right. I was just about to jump in and talk about, start talking about what I love about the Quinta, but I can't forget a couple quick announcements first. Um, uh, first, um, this is, uh, we're coming in the next couple days here. It's the last chance to register for our spring classes if you still want to, uh, especially if you want to jump in and still audit the Invented Language class or my Modern Fantasy class. Uh, there's, um, there's still time. Um, the enrollment for those will be closed at the end of this week, um, but it will be open through then, so you've got still got a couple days. If you're not uh, taking part in that yet, you still have a chance to do it. So I just wanted to make sure to draw your attention to the fact that that window is closing. Um, and uh, thanks to everybody who's already enrolled. Uh, I've been having a great time so far. We're talking about Catherine Kerr's novel Dagger Spell from the mid-'80s, uh, the first of her Devery series, which is a really, really interesting book, even more interesting than I remember. I've been having a really fun time looking at that. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, second announcement is we are getting closer to the great chicken run of 2016. The Mickle Delving to Minas Tirith chicken run. Yes, walking, well, running fast uh, from Mickle Delving all the way to Minas Tirith in the form of a chicken over the course of one day. Uh, 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 and wacky hijinks ensue. I'll be streaming that. Um, and, of course, the, hopefully the reward at the end of the day is um, uh, is uh, to get to explore Minas Tirith, which I've never seen, and get to go around and uh, look at look and see what uh, Lotro has done uh, with, uh, with their depiction of Minas Tirith, which I, I think is going to be a lot of fun. I've seen, uh, I've seen shots of it, um, and I saw some of the, some of the, preliminaries, the turbine folks showed me some of the preliminary stuff before they released it, but I've never actually walked around inside it in the game, so I'm looking forward to that. So again, that's on Saturday the 30th. Okay. Quenta. So, I've talked a little bit about the kind of the oddity of the genre of this text, right? How he's sort of taking plot summary and kind of making it his own. And again, I want to emphasize, several of you were saying last time, like, well, you know, Often mythological stories are kind of done like that. I mean, it's true there are, as you know, and as I said, there are these kind of like digests of myths. It's that's a thing. That's a genre. It's not that he's completely making this up entirely, but it's a completely new direction for him. Is the point? And the thing that seems to me so odd about it is the way in which it seems to have been so unmeditated on his part. It's not like he sat down and said, "Okay, let's see. I've tried." Uh, series of in-depth tales with, uh, you know, the frame narrative around it. That was that was kind of okay. I tried the epic poem thing. That was fun, but it didn't really pan out. At least he didn't finish any of them. Um, hey, I know. I'm going to do an epitomized plot summary thing. I think I'll do that. Right? That's not, doesn't seem to be how the process worked. This, the Quinta obviously grew out of the sketch, and the sketch is simply a plot summary not for artistic purposes, but just for the purpose of plot summary, right? In order to give the background story, in order to contextualize the children of Horan. Um, and the idea that he would take that, that kind of incidental piece, in a sense, the, 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 the bit of his, the summary of his mythology that he seems to have written essentially without artistic aspirations at all, right? Just a, just a, a sketch, just a, a bunch of notes. 
And the idea that he's going to seize on that and say, oh, no, actually, this is where I want to live, right? <laughs> this this non-literary thing that I started doing, this plot summary I wrote for a friend, yeah, 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 that's actually the genre I now want to be in. It's, um, it's, 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 anyway, that's why I was calling it odd and, and such a, such a strange and, and kind of new thing, um, for Tolkien himself. And, and in the way that I'm describing unpremeditated in that way, which seems to, uh, just seems to me very interesting. Most interesting, of course, in that we know that's where it's going to end up, right? Ultimately, the published Silmarillion is going to be essentially in this mode. Um, so that, you know, it's certainly sort of worth, um, worth thinking about, um, uh, you know, just sort of how that came about, and to and and it's re- and it's fascinating to kind of watch this develop from scratch. That's what that's what I love about looking, reading first the sketch and then reading the quinta. Um, yeah, I mean, you can look, of course, at developments of certain details in the story as Christopher Tolkien, you know, does such a good job of, and that's cool. But that's that's to me, that's not where the real cool stuff lies, right? To me, what is really interesting is to see this grow into from a summary into a story i think you know so the way that that's the way that that's growing i think is really cool um okay uh first let me just check uh, did anybody lose my audio i want to make 100 i get at least one person lost my audio and i want to make sure sometimes i know that happens to individual people sometimes uh and it's often on your end when it happens just want to confirm make sure everybody else can hear me okay cool um Anyway, okay, so uh, I want to start off looking at some kind of evidence of how this was sort of working in Tolkien's mind. Um, Let me show you what I'm talking about here. Okay. Um, This is... um, this is from uh, uh, Christopher Tolkien's notes, right, from his commentary on the Quenta. And remember, you know, this is one of the several times when the Quenta makes a reference to the this song, right, as is told in the Song of the Flight of the Gnomes in this case, right? Um, and his, this is Christopher's comment on that particular reference here. Of course, this is in the context of the kinslang and everything. The reference to the Song of the Flight of the Gnomes may be to the alliterative poem The Flight of the Noldoli, Volume 3, though that was abandoned at the Feanorian Oath. Perhaps my father still thought to continue it one day, or to write a new poem on the subject. And then he adds, Later this becomes a reference to that lament which is named Noldolante, the fall of the Noldor, that Maglor made ere he was lost. But I have found no trace of this, he says. Um, that is to say, of course, these references, right? These references to the songs, you know, like, if you would like to know more about this story, consult, right, this, uh, epic, this, this epic song or this huge story out there, right? Except they're not out there, right? Or at least we're used to coming across those. There, there are lots of references like that in the, in the published Silmarillion, right? And when you're reading it in the context, just of the, you know, if you just come to the Silmarillion, right? You've, so, you know, you're a, you're a typical Tolkien fan, uh, which means, you know, you probably started with The Hobbit, maybe you started with The Lord of the Rings, 
uh, and you really liked it. And then you found out that there was this other book called The Silmarillion, so you read The Silmarillion, or you started reading The Silmarillion, and you got to Of Beleriand and its realms, and you were like, okay, this is kind of boring. I'm not following all these uh, F names. Forget about it. And then you come back and you reread The Silmarillion like 10 years later, and you're like, wow, that was amazing. Um, but that's all you've read, right? You know, that is so, so the typical Tolkien fan who hasn't been doing what we've been doing in these classes and reading through Book of Lost Tales and the Lays of Beleriand and everything else. If you just read The Lord of the Rings and then you come to this published Silmarillion, you're going to come to all these references to all these other songs and, and epics out there. And it sounds like depth, right? Like things that we see, and we know Tolkien is kind of, uh, uh, kind of famous for this sort of thing, right? Um, uh, that is, for making references to things which provide the perception of depth for his narrative, right? And, you know, it, whether or not the Nol Delante as a poem ever actually existed totally doesn't matter, right? The fact that we are told that Maglor made a lament which is called Nol Delante, the fall of the Noldor, that fact itself provides, gives a kind of richness, not only for the character of Maglor, but for this, for the story of the Noldor, and of course, especially for this particular moment, um, that, 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 that gives it a, uh, a you know, a, a, a really good, um, you know, a, a, this sort of sense of depth, you know, it gives it a profundity. That's really cool, right? To me, when I come across these references in the Quinta, in this context, that is, reading through the History of Middle-Earth series as we're doing and coming to the Quinta, coming across these references sounds very different to me now than it does when I meet them in the published Silmarillion, right? As Christopher mentions, the Song of the Flight of the Gnomes that he refers to, he appears to be, I mean, I agree with him, it does sound like the reference to the Song of the Flight of the Gnomes does sound a lot like that we know that he wrote this, started writing this poem called The Flight of the Noldoli, right? It exists. We, well, a fragment of it exists, and, and we read a fragment of it uh, last, last time. Um, last, last, uh, last History of Middle-Earth class. Um, that is to say, that does not seem to be something just to create the perception, ultimately the false perception, in a sense, of depth. Right, he seems to be referring to a poem that we know that he started, and we have no necessary reason to think he doesn't intend to finish. Right, this is particularly uh, striking to me when we get to um, his reference to the children of Hurin. Um, you remember this paragraph is right there. I mean, it's practically word for word, very, very close to the same paragraph that we get in the published Silmarillion. The fate of Turin is told in the children of Hurin, and it need not be in full need not in full be told here, though it is wound with the fates of the Silmarils and the Elves. It is called the Tale of Grief, for it is very sorrowful, and in it are seen the worst of the deeds of Morgoth Bauglir. Right? There are some changes. It's not exactly word for word, but you may remember a passage very similar to that, which survives very closely in the published Silmarillion. Again, when you come across that in the published Silmarillion, especially if you know no other version of, of the Turin story than that which is in the published Silmarillion, um, this just sounds like, again, another one of those perception of depth things, right? But it's especially conspicuous. We, 
I would say. I would go so far. Like the, the, the previous one, the Flight of the Noldoli one, right? Um, that one seems, it seems very likely he's referring to the actual poem that he really began and perhaps means to continue, right? Here, it seems almost impossible not to think that he's referring to the actual poem, of course, because this is a really conspicuous reference. This is not a reference to just any poem, right? This is a reference back to the poem for which the entire sketch of the mythology was providing context, right? The enti- the whole way that this entire new project began was as a prose accompaniment to the la- alliterative lay of the children of Hurin, right? So the idea that uh, that he just waves his hand at like the you know a, a poem called the children of Hurin in order to give a perception of death is obviously not what's happening here, right? Clearly, the children of Hurin exists. Now it's not finished. He never finished it, right? He started it, he rewrote it, and didn't, and got even less far the second time. Uh, fairly typical uh, Tolkienian revision pattern there, um, but uh, but anyway, it, it's 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 that in a sense that is the prime text. Now in the Quenta, as he expands this, we're moving away from this, right? You could no longer certainly you couldn't call the Quenta as it exists in this volume, what we've been talking about here. You couldn't call the Quenta a mere accompaniment to the way of the children of Horan, right? The sketch might have been that. The Quenta is now grown into something more. But that's what it grew out of, right? The children of Horan, therefore, necessarily has a kind of a special relationship with the Quenta here. Um, and so the point that I'm, just, that I'm trying to make is simply, um, this is the most obvious example. Um, this, is, this is an example which, for me really sways the way that I read all the rest of these kinds of references. When we get references to the Lay of Lathian, or, as, or the Lay of Luthien, as he very often calls it uh, in the Quenta, to the children of Hurin, to the flight of the Noldoli, we get a bunch of references to poems which we know full well, not only that he has been writing, but or that he has written, but that he is writing at the time. Remember Christopher uh, Tolkien's fairly compelling argument for how he's now, by the time we get up to the, uh, to the middle of the Quenta, we've reached the point where he's writing the Lay of Lathian and the Quenta at the same time, right? He's, it's, you know, he, he'd started uh, the, the Lay of Lathian back in 1928, uh, and the Quenta doesn't get started until 1930, but he's still writing the Lay of Lathian in 1930. Um, so we've gotten to the point where he's, he's writing them both at the same time, right? So, where, you know, the, the, in particular, you'll remember, this is about the, the story of the fall of Fingolfin, um, if you uh, read the Lay of Lathian with me a few months back, you'll remember the climactic. Uh, well, and it's not climactic; it's digressive, if anything. But the 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 uh, the epic, let me say, the uh, spectacular Canto Twelve, the description of the fight of Fingolfin and uh, Morgoth, um, and that's the moment where it seems that he's he's leapfrogged things, and that that. Um, uh, that that account actually was written after the account in the Quenta. Um, so again, far from saying, I'm just going to throw out the names of theoretical poems in order to make it sound cooler, he's not even just making references to poems he already conceived of or began, he's actually making references to other works that he's writing at the time, you see. In other words, I think that the, the conclusion that I am tempted to draw 
therefore, from these references, and the way that these references work, not in the published Silmarillion, but in the Quenta, is that it seems to give me a particular picture of what he intended this to be. Again, as this thing, this what was a plot sketch, and is now something literary, right? Um, what that seems to be growing into still, I think, is a piece designed to accompany poetry, right? Not just the Lay of the Children of Horan, but all of them. Um, it makes me wonder. Um, I wonder if at this time, in 1930, as he's writing the Quenta, if the form that he ultimately imagined, if, if you know, he's sort of imagining publication, right? What would the completed Silmarillion look like um, in Tolkien, to, to Tolkien in 1930? And it sounds to me as if the completed Silmarillion might have looked like the Quenta accompanied by a series of epic poems, right? That you can read alongside. You can either pause in the Quenta and read the epic poem, right? Or you can, if, you know, you can, you can turn and, you know, if you are become interested in the story of Baron and Luthien, you can turn and read the Lay of Lathian at length, right? Um, but it's still, I think, so if the sketch was merely the kind of, uh, you know, sort of Cliff's Notes overview of the history of Middle-earth to enable you to understand all the references in the, in the Children of Hurin. The Quenta is, though much more than that, doesn't seem necessarily to be doing something different than that. It's still an overview, now more literary, now fuller, and yet still designed to be accompanied by these poems. That at least is, um, uh, that at least is my thought about it. Yeah, James, I was thinking about that too. Um, uh, James says that the idea is supported by the fact that he sent the Lay of Lathian and the Quenta to his publisher together. Yeah, no, I mean, he didn't say, like, they're supposed to go like this, right? You know, this is, this is you know, they're, they're designed to be together. But, but yeah, the fact that he did package them, that does also kind of influence my thinking in that way. But again, I think we can hear it, even in just in, in these moments. Um, and it's a fascinating evolution, right? As he gets later on in his career, and he isn't really, doesn't have any serious plans then to go back and finish those epic poems, right? He's never going to go back to the Flight of the Noldoli. Um, he's never going to go back to the Lay of the Children of Hurin. He's going to very briefly go back to the Lay of Lathian and stop. Um, but, um, but anyway, so later on in his career, he shifts it, right? So those references are retained in the published Silmarillion, but they're transformed into mere depth, right? But I don't think that that's where they were originally. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Tom Hillman says, it's like the poetic and prose Eddas together and complete. Yeah, kind of like that, kind of like that. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Yana, Yana says, it's also made clearer by the constant references to the lays for further information, saying that we need not say more in prose. Yeah, yeah, Yana, it almost sounds like, in part, it's like a justification for his brevity, right? I don't have to give all the details here, because you can read it, right? Um, you can you can read it for yourself in in uh, you know in the lay of Lathian and in the um, in the lay of the children of Hurin. Absolutely. Um, well, let's look at some more. I've been talking about how it's growing, and we looked at a couple examples last time. Uh, two more examples that I wanted to uh, um, that I wanted to read this time. I was looking at, for instance, last time I read the uh, uh, the darkening of Valinor passage um, as an example of how we can see now this really growing into something. Um, I said artistic or literary something 
tempted to say poetic, though that's now a little bit confusing as I'm talking about the prose being accompanied by poetry. But um, but let's look um, let's look at my two examples. But the orc host and the mighty dragon came upon Nargathron before Turin could put it in defense, and they overthrew Oradreth and all his remaining folk, and the great halls beneath the earth were sacked and plundered, and all the women and maidens and the folk of Nerog were herded as slaves and taken into Morgoth's thraldom. Turin only they could not overcome, and the orcs fell back before him in terror and amaze, and he stood alone. Thus ever did Morgoth achieve the downfall of men by their own deeds— for but little would men have accounted the woe of Turin had he fallen in brave defense before the mighty doors of Nargothrond. Fire was in the eyes of Turin, and the edges of his sword shone as with flame, and he strode to battle even with Glomund, alone and unafraid. But it was not his fate that day to rid the world of that creeping evil, for he fell under the binding spell of the lidless eyes of Glomund, and he was halted moveless. But Glomund taunted him, calling him deserter of his kin, friend-slayer, and love-thief. So notice how, although it retains the sort of the, the perspective of summary, right? Um, that is, we don't come in and get dialogue, for instance. We don't get a direct quotation from Glomond here. Um, like we will later on in the prose Narn, when he writes the fuller, sort of more novelized version of it. Um, we're not getting that, so we're still sort of staying... And again, this is this is the metaphor that I kept using in the Silmarillion seminar when I was talking about this years ago, um, was like altitude, like, t- you know, telling the story like from 10,000 feet and looking at the whole sort of panorama around you, rather than really being down side by side with the characters and, you know, watching the um, the uh, the you know listening to the conversations and watching the events like an immediate spectator, um, we're sort of looking down on the whole story. It so it, it it stays the altitude stays up, but notice how much closer this is swooping down. Right, um, fire was in the eyes of Turin, and the edges of his sword shone as with flame. And he strode to battle even with Glomund alone and unafraid. Um, notice how. Here again, we're getting these details, but this is not details. That that's, this is not the kind of details that again, like a novel writer would be giving, right? It's not mere sort of physical details or what you would have seen if you were there. This is still a broad heroic description, right? Fire was in the eyes of Turin is not necessarily a physical description, right? This is still just fleshing out Turin's, you know, Turin's uh, attitude. Turin's stature, um, uh, giving us a kind of emotional and sort of mythic context for Turin's actions at this particular time, right? Um, uh, but uh, so 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 it still is maintaining that kind of mythic distance, but it's um, but it's really good, right? It's and it's much closer down. Um, pausing to get this detail, this heroic description of Turin striding forward to confront Glomond alone and unafraid. Uh, this is a kind of thing that he never even really attempted uh, in uh, in the sketch. And yeah, Kate, I agree, Kate Neville says, he just can't help it though, can he? Even the appendices of the Lord of the Rings sometimes veer from mere summary. Yes, I agree. Um, you know, so uh, that's why like, Kate, you know, I was thinking of this when reading the Turin stuff uh, in the Quenta this week. Um, you know, if you, so that the Turin story is divided into two 
of Christopher Tolkien's sections of the Quinta, right? And uh, there's nothing less surprising than that the first half of the Turin story is about a third as long as the second half, right? Like, who didn't see that coming, right? You knew, you just knew that as he got further into um, retelling the Turin story, it was going to get protracted and the details were going to get greater and greater as you went along, right? So he's he's pretty terse all the way through Tur- uh, Turin's childhood and what, I mean, he tells the whole story of what happens with him in Doriath in like a paragraph, right? Um, but then, you know, think about the details that we get down to like the, you know, the number of guys that came with him and when they defected and Turin's, ex- you know, the Turin's experience, like trying to hang on, you know, by the bushes on the cliffside as he's waiting for, for Glomond, right? I mean, it's lots and lots of detail. Um, but I, again, as you say, Kate, that's, it's so predictable, right? Once he gets rolling, once the momentum picks up, you can see that. And we, we can see that even as we go through the Quinta, right? I mean, notice how much longer these sections are getting than the earlier sections were. Um, notice how much more detail we get. I mean, think about, for instance, on the one hand, the description of the battle under stars, the first battle, right? And what we heard about that, compared with the account of the ba- uh, the, uh, the the battle of, of, of Sudden Flame, right? Or the battle of Unnumbered Tears after that. And, you know, this just, it expands and expands and expands. Uh, that is, not that the story is getting bigger, but that his telling becomes more and more detailed. He, he, he hasn't... He hasn't shifted, right? Again, he's still maintaining the same genre. He's not just ditched... I mean, like, for instance... I'm guilty of this myself a lot. Um, when I write, I always start off by writing an outline just to try to get my ideas in order. And my outline rarely makes it through half a page before it's a full prose draft. I just, like, I can't. But it's, like, the secret way in which I deceive myself, right? If I can't think of what to say and how to get going, I just start making an outline, and pretty soon I'm drafting, right? Um, but when I do that... I am guilty of actually shifting genres, right? I'm no, no one could call that later thing an outline anymore. It's a draft now, right? Tolkien doesn't do that. He doesn't shift, you know, he, he doesn't start off, you know, in his plot summary genre and then kind of ooze over into, like, full-length novel without, um, uh, with, you know, full novelization without, you know, signaling, right? That's not what happens. He stays in that genre. Again, we stay at altitude, even in this passage, right? More detailed, richer in, uh, in, in sort of in detail and mythic suggestiveness, but it's not, it's still not dropping. Again, we're not getting dialogue, we're not getting internal monologue, we're not, um, it's, it's still from a height, right? Um, and yet, and yet, he can't not, uh, he can't not pursue it. Um, yeah, exactly, Tom. It grows in the telling. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, it's true, Brian, uh, you know, Brian Dimmick points out that, of course, the later and sadder material in the Turin story, for instance, is more interesting to Tolkien and more relevant to his themes. Yes, yes, it's true. It is. Um, uh, yeah. <clears throat> but still um you know for instance you take the um the way the 
Doriath material is treated in the fullest version of it, uh, that is, in the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin, we get a lot of really rich and important stuff in the Doriaths, you know, the stuff which is really important for the remainder of the story. The poignancy of the sadder material at the end, Brian relies heavily upon, especially in the story of Turin, right? Unlike the, the sort of uh, crushing fulfillment of the foreshadowing at the beginning, the foreshadowings at the beginning of the story and watching his choices play out and everything. Um, and again, and you can see that in the fuller versions when he's not trying to maintain this you know, plot summary genre anymore. We can see him working all that stuff in more. Uh, again, there's, there's, there's a lot of material there in the Doriath stuff. But he uh, he lets it go, and, and I still can't help but think that it has a lot to do with the fact that uh, um, uh, with the fa- with, with again with again just him sort of gaining momentum as he goes along. Um, but anyway, I just I just love this stuff. There are a whole bunch of. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna say one thing, which is hard about falling in love with the Quenta the way that I am, is. In some ways, it almost undermines some of my appreciation for the published Silmarillion. Um, there are a whole bunch of bits in the Quenta that I like better than I like the published version. Like this. This paragraph, the fire in the eyes of Turin and the edges of his sword shone as with flame. I like that better. I said I like the description of the darkening that we got. Um, they're very similar, but not the same we got a little more in the Quinta um, of detail, and I, I like it, right? Here's another one that I like. Uh, this is, of course, uh, the divided hosts of the Feanorians uh, and the rest of the Noldor um, uh, around Mithrim, right af- after Feanor's death. Little love was there between the two hosts encamped upon opposing shores of Mithrim, and the delay engendered by their feud did great harm to the cause of both. Now vast vapors and smokes were made in Angband, and sent forth from the smoking tops of the mountains of iron, which even afar off in Hithlam could be seen staining the radiance of those earliest mornings. The vapors fell and coiled about the fields and hollows, and lay on Mithram's bosom dark and foul. Then Finweg the valiant resolved to heal the feud. Alone he went in search of Maedros. Aided by the very mists of Morgoth, and by the withdrawal of the forces of Angband, he ventured into the fastness of his enemies, and at last he found Maedros hanging in torment. Um, okay, so that first sentence, paragraph should sound familiar from the published Silmarillion, and that third paragraph should sound familiar from the published Silmarillion, but how about that second paragraph, huh? Um, uh, Now, there are two... This is reduced in the published Silmarillion to two mere details, two mere facts, right? We we, we hear that Morgoth has, you know, spews uh, foul reeks uh, because he's hiding from the sun, right? So he's seeking to cloak himself from the lights. You know, the newly risen sun kind of freaks him out. So we're told that, like, Thangorodrum belches forth vapors and things uh, in order to make this pall of cloud around it. Um, and we're told that... Uh, I th- think we're told... Aren't we told? 
that uh, Finweg's approach to Thangorodrim is aided by the very mists of Morgoth. I think that detail is in the published Silmarillion. Um, <laughs> this is like... Um, you know... <laughs> I feel like this, the interpretive problem I'm having right now is what, like, on Twitter I would put, like, hashtag Tolkien problems. Uh, that is, you know how Tolkien will tell a story and then he'll retell a story, like a very similar version of that same story later on, right? We'll get that kind of, you know, and I think of it in terms of, of, of typology, which I've talked about before. Um, you know, like how, how, uh, you get the story of Fingon and Mithros, and Fingon singing and Mithros responding, and that's how Fingon finds him. And then that same uh, that same story repeated uh, with Sam and Frodo in the Tower of Kirithungal, right? Um, but the, the, the Tolkien problem I'm having is, like, I can't remember if this was in this story or in one of the echoes of this story. I know it's, I mean, it's certainly true of Frodo and Sam in Mordor 2, uh, uh, that uh, they were aided by, you know, the, the by his very darkness, um, but um, but I can't I can't remember. I think that that's in the published Silmarillion. There, if not, anyway, whatever. I'm uh, I'm all uh, I'm, I'm all I'm I'm all confused. Plus, as 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 Karita is reminding me, I'm I'm uh, I. I'm also quite fuddled, having both the sketch and the Quentic uh, fresh in my mind, and having been reviewing the Lost Tales and the Lays of <laughs> the Lays of Beleriand, uh, and uh, also thinking about the and re-read, I'm rereading the published Silmarillion now, and thinking about the Silm Film Project, and so I've got like a whole bunch of different versions. Anyway, I'm all confused, um, but the point is, point is. What is not there in the published Silmarillion is that middle paragraph. And I love that middle paragraph. Look at that! Now vast vapors and smokes were made in Angband, and sent forth from the smoking tops of the mountains of iron, which even afar off in Hithlam could be seen staining the radiance of those earliest mornings. I mean, okay, again, the concept that they spewed forth mist, that's there, right? Mist and smokes, that's there. But, wow, that image, right? How gorgeous is that? Which even afar off in Hithlam could be seen staining the radiance of those earliest mornings, right? These are the first mornings of the sun, and yet to the elves in Hithlam, who, you know, under, well, at least half of them, under whose feet flowers sprang forth, right, as the sun rose and they marched forward, blowing their horns, um, so we've got these earliest, you know, these radiant early mornings, and yet the radiance of those mornings is stained uh, by the smoking tops of the mountains of iron afar off. What a wonderful image. The vapors fell and coiled about the fields and hollows and lay on Mithram's bosom dark and foul. What an awesome metaphor for the way in which the evil and brooding influence of Morgoth you know, not just sweeps, but crawls and slithers across Beleriand, right? Uh, the, 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 the serpentine imagery there, right? The vapors fell and coiled about the fields and hollows. Um, and the, the, the combination of the personification of Mithrim, right? Lay on Mithrim's bosom, dark and foul, as well as the... Uh, shoot. What would the snake version of personification be? Oh, I can't remember the adjective, the word for snake. It's not hepta, that's reptile generally, the the heptification 
I suppose, would be the rep, reptilizing. But, um, uh, anyway. Oh, hot diggity. Yana, I'm right. Thank you, Yana. Thank you for finding it. Um, <laughs> slitherification, yeah. Yeah, Lee, that's kind of what I was thinking of. Um, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Therefore he dared a deed which is justly renowned among the feats of the Noldor. Alone and without the counsel of any, he set forth in search of Mithros, and aided by the very darkness that Morgoth had made, he came unseen into the fastness of his foes. Yes, I'm not crazy. Okay, thank you. Uh, Persnakeification. <laughs> okay, yeah, all right, that'll work. Persnakeification. Uh, anyway, anyway, the point is... Um, uh, yeah, Karita says, and now we have the mist being shown as a creepy manhandling pervert. Yeah, exactly, Karita. I mean, how unclean does? I mean, it's supposed to make you feel unclean, right? But how how unclean is it? You know, it's 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 like it's. I mean, it's like this this oily, greasy snake groping the bosom of Lake Mithrim, right? I mean, it's it's a really unpleasant image. But it's a perfectly unpleasant image, right? I mean, it exactly captures that. I just, I love that image. And we don't get that. We lose that, right? We lose this. We lose a bunch of the, the those details, those, those images that I loved in The Darkening of Valinor. In particular, by the way, I even think that shifting Ungoliant into spider form or being more consistent with her spider form, which is in the published Silmarillion, that is, um, it's her beak, her beak. Uh, that she lays to the wounds uh, in the trees and sucks uh, the sap from them and the poison from her beak. Whereas, if you recall, in the Quenta, it was her lips that she lays, Ungoliant's vile lips. Um, And the idea of the vile lips of Ungoliant um, uh, seems to me even actually more horrifying uh, than her beak. Um, Oh, Ophidification, yes. Okay, Nancy and Brian have the yes. Um, ophiomorphism, yes, exactly. So it's yes, it's the uh, uh, the ophiomorphic description. Thank you. The ophiomorphic description uh, of of the uh, of of the smoke combined with the personification. Um, yeah, I like it. I like it. Okay. Anyway. The point is, isn't this awesome? I mean, this is some great stuff here. And again, notice, we're not shifting genres, right? We're not novelizing. It's still being told in this kind of distant and mythic register. But dang, right? Really, uh, really conveying some powerful stuff uh, with these images. Um, nothing like this in... Okay, very little like this in the sketch. Um, but sadly... I would say, less of this in the published Silmarillion than we get in the Quinta. Um, And, I mean, I know, you know, we had to cram to fit everything into the published Silmarillion, but darn, I miss some of these passages. Anyway, whatever. Um, One last thing about the overall shape before I uh, uh, come in and talk about... um, talk about that. Oh, interesting. Arthur says, uh, the bad guys get very sensual language and images, and the good guys less so... Maybe, Arthur, maybe. I'm not 100% sure I'd say it like that. I think how I would say it would be... When 
Tolkien will more often when he invokes explicit physical sexuality um, rather than a sort of a more sort of abstract desire or admiration um, you know that it but whenever we get you know sensual leers and thoughts about or references to groping or sexual acts it tends to be Tolkien tends to use that in the context of invoking the creepy factor basically like the sexual innuendo I mean if you remember I don't, perhaps you haven't even recovered yet uh, from the sexual innuendo in Morgoth and Luthien's exchange in the Lay of Lathian poem in the Lays of Beleriand remember how creepy that passage was right um but um, uh, anyway, I, I, it's it's uh, he does that right, but again, but he's clearly invoking it for the ick factor. We're supposed to be icked by that. Um, we're supposed to be icked by Kelligorm's sexual desire for Luthien. We're supposed to be icked by. Um, uh, uh, Trying to make sure I think of other really clear examples. Um, uh, even by Sa- yeah, by, by Sauron's uh, plans to uh, capture Luthien and hand her over to his master's pleasure, right? Uh, Worm tongue, good, yes, Tom. Worm tongue's uh, 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 interest in Eowyn is creepy, but I think that. Well, I mean, <laughs> talk about your dangerous tangents uh, I am embarking on here. Um, I don't think that it's true. You know, some have said that, you know, Tolkien's heroes are, like, completely asexual, and I don't think that that's right at all. Um, I think, for instance, there is clearly a sexual attraction. I think there is explicitly a sexual attraction between Aragorn and Eowyn. Um, uh, they don't go there, right? Aragorn doesn't go there anyway. Um uh, it's obvious. I mean, Faramir and Eowyn in the houses of, of 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 healing, right? I mean, it's 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 not that there is no sensuality there. It's not that there's no sexual passion, but he doesn't. Uh, he seems to reserve like these kinds, like th- that kind of sexual advance for the ick factor and the creepy stuff. Um, so anyway, as I say, dangerous tangent. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Brian, that's an interesting way to say it. Brian Dimmick says, For Tolkien, having sexual desire is not a bad thing, but doing something based on sexual or lustful motives is wrong. That's a really interesting way to think about it. That seems... Um, that seems... Right, I think... Um, yes. Yes. I mean, you think about for, I mean, compare and contrast Faramir and Wormtongue's desire for Eowyn, for instance, right? Um, both of them look at her and think she's kind of hot, right? Uh, and desire to have her, right? There's, that's kind of 
that's true in both cases. And yet, one is creepy and one is not, right? Um, and the difference does seem to be all about the attitude, right? All about the framework. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, anyway, okay. Sorry, sorry. My apologies. I shouldn't have gone, <laughs> I shouldn't have gone there. Let's move on. All right, one last thing before we... Uh, uh, before we, we, we tuck back into some of the particular stories, I'm particularly interested uh, to do a little more Hobbit talk uh, here today in, 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 in a couple minutes. But first, one last thing. And again, this is another thing where we can see um, another instructive thing to look not backwards to the tales and the lays, but forwards to the published Silmarillion. End the Turin story. Turin they buried nigh to the edge of Silver Bowl, and his name Turin Turambar was carved there upon a rock. Beneath was written Neonor Niniel. Men changed the name of that place thereafter to Nengirith, the Shuddering Water. So ended the tale of Turin the Unhappy, and it has ever been held that the worst held the worst of the works of Morgoth in the ancient world. Some have said that Morwen, wandering woefully from Thingol's halls, when she found Neonor not there on her return, came on a time to that stone and read it, and there died. Um, okay, now, Christopher Tolkien has an excellent explanation. I really, I, I think he has a really fair, in fact, he even got a little snarky, right? Um, I actually, I really kind of liked uh, Christopher Tolkien's snark moment, um, uh, on uh, the idea of naming, renaming, the, the way that in the published Silmarillion, uh, the renaming of the wa- of the waterfall to the Shuddering Water happens is mentioned at the time when she shudders first, right when she's first being brought back to the to the Woodman's camp by Turin, having you know so he's found her naked and he's brought her back, and when she passes the falls, she has this shuddering fit, right. And this published Silmarillion just kind of casually says, and it was called the shuddering, you know, the shuddering water from from then on, right? Um, and Christopher Tolkien comments on this and says, you know, obviously we're supposed to understand that, you know, afterwards meant after all the events of the story, not from that moment. You know, it's we're not supposed to understand that within the time of the story, right? As Neonor comes back to camp, they're like, hey, everybody, we renamed the waterfall the Shuddering Water because she totally shuddered when we walked by, and that seemed like significant, right? Because like strange crazy amnesia lady had she shuddered when we walked past that so we're totally renaming the waterfall from now on right and Christopher Tolkien kind of mocks at that idea of course that's not how it happened right obviously it's only when her shuddering was recalled and recognized as a portent of the evil that was going to happen there right the fact that um, she is walking past the place where she is going to discover the truth uh, and where Turin's going to commit suicide and where she's going to throw herself off and commit suicide herself. Um, and so it's this, it's sort of her own foreboding of this which leads her to shudder. The foreboding of the shuddering, of the original shuddering is, you know, the, the significance of it is recognized, and so retroactively it is called the shuddering falls. Christopher Tolkien's great on this. But the thing to me that is so interesting is... Again, comparing and contrasting the way the Quenta presents this and the way the published Silmarillion presents this. And again, um, yeah, good, Tom, she's walking on her own grave. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, In the published Silmarillion, I don't know even, I don't even know how many years I read the published Silmarillion and thought 
that that's what it meant. That it meant the silly thing. Like I, I you know, I would, I, I would sometimes jokingly point to it as a funny example, right, of Tolkien in names. Like, see, like things get their names changed at the drop of a hat, right? In Tolkien's story, for instance, look at the shuddering water, right? Lady has shuddering fit. They change the name, right? <clears throat> I mean, that's totally. I mean, I was dumb. That's totally how I took it uh, when I read it in the published Silmarillion. That oh, that reading seems very. Well, okay, I was about to say seems plausible. It seems plausible to think that that's what the text is suggesting, right? Um, not that the actual event seems objectively speaking plausible. Um, but, uh, yeah, good, yeah, Yana, yeah, Yana points out that I did that in the Silmarillion seminar. Quite likely, quite likely, I don't even remember, but quite likely. Um, I, there are whole bunches of things, there's so many things that I, that I like, take forever to stumble onto. Um, I can't even tell you how many things I've only stumbled on stumbled onto after reading one of Tolkien texts for like the 20th time and I'm like holy cow I feel so dumb. But anyway, yeah. Um uh, so right but but again, this is the origin of that, right? That is to say this is where we get that phrase which in the published Silmarillion is going to get transposed to the earlier time, right? And that's going to be done, it seems, in order to emphasize the portentousness of her shuddering fit. So it doesn't seem just like a completely random and skippable detail, right? Um, you can tell that her shuddering must be significant. Uh, that is, if if you're at all attentive, as I was not, um, you'll pick up on the fact that, like, hmm, maybe her shuddering at this point is significant, right? On account of the name change being referred to here. Um, so it works in that way. But, uh, um, but, um, here it, it, it really, it works more intuitively. It makes more sense here. That is to say, there are places where you can tell that the published Silmarillion is a reworking of this text and not always, not in all places, a perfectly success, successful reworking of this text, um, you know, some places, as I've just been pointing out, where it kind of goes backwards in poetic suggestiveness and wealth of detail. Um, places where some things are retained and shuffled around, like this reference, which get, which actually become a little bit confusing, where they weren't confusing in the original story, as he's not just revising, but also bringing other things in and trying to juggle different stuff. Um, and I think, um, and I think that that's. Um, I think it's really interesting to see, and again, it's one of the things that I think is 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 really cool about uh, looking at the different versions as we've been doing. All right, let's talk about uh, let's talk about Hobbit stuff. Oh, yeah, Yana is perfectly fair. Yana points out it's also important to remember that the Silmarillion is not a single continuing text like this one. Uh, yes, exactly, Yana. It's one of the ways in which we can see. It. Um, that's exactly one of the things I was trying to get at there. That the Silmarillion is not just a revision of this text, right? It's not just a revision of this, like the Quenta is a revision of the sketch, right? The published Silmarillion is this kind of pieced together thing, right? Um, which draws on a whole bunch of different stuff and gets all kind of glommed together, and that often works wonderfully, but not always perfectly. Um, so yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Hobbit stuff. Uh, first, a simple one. Uh, 
And we've talked about this before, so I won't dwell on it too much before. That's the whole Tower Nefuin Deadly Nightshade connection with Mirkwood, right? Um, but I hope that this jumped out at you as you were reading this, too. The south was held by Felagund, son of Finrod, and his brethren. A tower they had on an island in the river Sirion, which guarded the valley between the northward-bending mountains on the borders of Hithlam, and the slopes where the great pine forest grew which Morgoth after filled with such dread and evil that not even the orcs would go through it, save by a single road and in great need and haste, and the gnomes came to call it Tower Nafuin, which is deadly nightshade. But in those days it was wholesome, if thick and dark, and the people of Oradreth, of Angrod and Egnor, ranged therein, and watched from its eaves the plain below that stretched to the mountains of iron." Oh, okay, so you've got this really dense forest, which was always really dense and kind of intimidating, but it used to be wholesome, though thick and dark, right? But then, later on, it became filled with dread and evil and darkness, and so it became sort of twisted and corrupted and was called Deadly Nightshade. So you can see how, again, the parallels... I talked, I've talked before, especially we talked about this when we were looking at the, the alliterative lay, um, the, the lay of the Children of Hurin, when we were looking at the description of Tower Nafuin and how close that description, how much that description sounds like, the description of Mirkwood in The Hobbit. Um, but of course we can see it has a similar history too, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of parallel there. Arthur is pointing out the, um, um, you know, we've got the Iron Mountains and the Iron Hills, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Arthur, I was even thinking of the, uh, the the line in the Dwarf Song, right? The pines were roaring on the heights, right? The slopes where the great pine forests grew. A whole bunch of, a uh, whole bunch of images. Um, uh, yeah, Kate, he did draw a picture of Tarnafuen. Yeah, he did. And he used it as an illustration of Mirkwood in The Hobbit. Hey! Uh, um, yeah, it's all good. Yeah, exactly, Kate. Yeah, I, uh, um, so yeah, anyway, I, I, I just want to, you know, in case that got past you, uh, I, 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 you know, that just the, so the fact that it also it's history, I was going to say it's history parallels the history of Mirkwood, but is that even fair? Actually, perhaps it's the history of Mirkwood, of course, which uh, parallels the history of Tower Nafuin. Um, but, uh, even more. Then I want to talk about Mirkwood. I want to talk about the dwarves. What do you think about the dwarves? We got lots of dwarf stuff in the Quenta here today, right? Do you like the depiction of the dwarves? Right? Kazad I Menu, the dwarves are upon you. The dwarves were certainly upon us today. Let's look at some dwarf passages and see what conclusions we draw here. There they made war upon the dwarves of Nogrod and Belagost, but they did not discover when that is the uh, Feanorians we're talking about. Um, I, and you, you remember. He changed this, right? He crossed that out. They made war upon the door. He changed that to they held converse with, which is a pretty significant difference, right? Um, But it's important, I think, that his initial impulse here is to say that they're at war, right? Okay. But they did not discover whence that strange race came, nor have any since. There is no story for the origin of dwarves, right? Um, Okay. They are not friend of Valar, or of Eldar, or of men. Nor do they serve Morgoth, though they are in many things more like his people, and little did they love the gnomes. Skill they had, well nigh to rival that of the gnomes, but less beauty was in their works, and iron they wrought rather than gold and silver, and mail and weapons were their chief craft. 
Trade and barter was their delight, and the winning of wealth, of which they made little use. Long were their beards, and short and squat their nature. Their stature, sorry. Um, short and squat their stature. Nauglier the gnomes called them, and those who dwelt in Nogrod they called Indrafangs, the long beards, because their beards swept the floor before their feet. But as yet little they troubled the people of Earth, while the power of the gnomes was great. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, so, um, this is not too flattering. Now, those of you uh, with long and retentive memories will recall in detail, this is quite similar to a, a parallel passage that we got in, uh, in, in, in the Lost Tales. Um, so this is not totally new stuff that we're getting here. The thing that's to me so important is that it hasn't changed, right? The fact that all of these things, um, the fact that they're generally antipathetic, they're not at all allies of the elves, in fact, they're at war with them initially, the fact that although they are craftsmen, their works are not very beautiful, right? Um, And uh, they're much more pragmatic in uh, in their smithcraft, right? Uh, working iron rather than gold and silver, because it's harder to kill people with gold and silver. Um, weapons are what they mostly do, right? Mail and weapons are what they make. Gold and silver is kind of useless for weapons and mail, right? And that's what they're interested in. Violence, right? Um, and money. Violence and money. That's what they're really interested in. They, their delight is not in craftsmanship, but in trade and barter. Right, the winning of wealth of which they made little use, and of course the parallel exactly. Lee is pointing that out, um, very much like uh, um, the uh, uh, very much like the the dragons. Absolutely, uh, it sounds sounds very dragonish, doesn't it? Um, yes, and of course there's the fun reversal. Um, Remember in The Hobbit, that passage that we were looking at about the old problems between the elves and the dwarves, right? Where the one When we were looking at the sketch and we looked at the, the, the description of Thingol's issues with the dwarves, right? Um, uh, and how that seems to be the version of the story that Tolkien has in mind when he writes that passage in The Hobbit, right? Except remember, in that passage in The Hobbit, Tolkien explicitly says that that old feud had nothing to do with Thorin's family, right? Except it does, explicitly, because his family are the Longbeards. That's in The Hobbit. Thorin says that. Uh, His family, the Longbeards, are derived from Durin. Durin was the first father of his house. He says that in Chapter 3 in the House of Elrond, when there's the reference to Durin's day. Um... And the dwarves of Nogrod are the long beards, and it's the dwarves of Nogrod who have the, who murder Thingol and get murdered and cheated and everything else. Um, so, so yeah, so um, it was explicitly the long beards. It was explicitly Thorin's family that was in fact involved in that exact dispute earlier on. So he reverses that in the Hobbit. But anyway, okay. So um, uh, this is. Um, and uh, by the way, uh, uh, Peter asks, uh, he says, uh, as yet little they troubled the people of Earth makes it seem as if Tolkien initially had something nefarious in mind for them at this point. Yeah, Peter does it. It seems kind of ominous, right? As yet 
little they troubled the people of Earth, right? Just you wait, right? The day is coming when they're going to trouble the people of Earth mightily. But for now, you know, they're still keeping a low profile. It does sound that way, doesn't it, Peter? And actually, Peter, I think that that's the case. I think that this is a reference to the curse of Meme and the issues with Doriath. Um, that's where the dwarves really kind of come into their own in these stories. Uh, so I, I suspect that that's what's being, uh, that's what's being referred to. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, oh no, Rich, uh, the, uh, um, lust, does he use, does he use lust? Does the word lust come in, in this, in this pack? Are you referring to the other thing? Where do we get, where do we get lust? Am I missing it? I could totally believe that he used the word lust. Uh, oh, oh! You're talking about the previous digression. No, I'm not going to be tempted back into the previous digression. Um, I've already said too much about that, um, or rather, more than I had uh, more than I had excuse to do. Okay, um, okay. So, so again, to me, what's interesting about this first passage is that this is still the way the dwarves are. What time is it? What year is it when we're writing this? 1930. 1930. 1930. Okay. Thank you. More. The smithies of Nogrod and Belagost were busy in those days, that is, immediately before the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, making mail and sword and spear for many armies, and much of the wealth and jewelry of the elves and men they got into their keeping at that time, though they, though they went not themselves to war, for we do not know the rights of this quarrel, they said, and we are friends of neither side, until it hath the mastery. Thus great and splendid was the army of Mydros, but the oath and curse did injury to his design. I don't know what you think, but, um, uh, where is it, uh, uh, yeah, busy in those days making mail and sword and spear for many armies, uh, like the armies of the elves and the armies of Morgoth, possibly? Uh, that kind of sounds to me like they're kind of uh, using both sides, really. Um, yeah, they won't choose sides until they see who's going to win. Very, very, yeah, exactly, Jan, including Morgoth. That's kind of what I was thinking. Um, yeah, so they're explicitly playing both, unashamedly playing both sides, right? So we are, um, we get no heroic action. No dwarf joins in the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. We get no Azakal, the the dwarf king, stabbing uh, Glaurung, you know, Glomund. Uh, in the in in the tummy, we don't get any of that, right? This is um, merely the dwarfs holding off on their own and profiting from everybody, right? Um, exactly, Yana. Every good arms dealer works both sides of the conflict. That's precisely the dwarves' situation here, um, and we see in that same spirit of profiteering, right? Oh, hey, Nargothrond has fallen. And guess what? The dragon's dead. The dwarves are there in a heartbeat. Right? But one meme the dwarf they found there. Right? Meme is a squatter. Now notice, no backstory for meme. No tragic history of the petty dwarves. No dead son that Turin's man accidentally killed and Turin felt bad for and wanted to provide a wear guild for his son. No, any kind of history with Turin. Meme is just a dwarf on the make, right? Who find, who knows that there is an unclaimed dragon horde and makes a beeline for it, right? Oh, wait. 
Who, uh, does anybody, anybody else do that? Who would make a beeline for an unclaimed dragon horde and everybody converge on that one spot? Well, if Meme were around when Smaug was destroyed, boy, he'd have been there first. Anyway, okay. Um, uh, so, so, so they come there, and there's Meme, right? And, and there's also, again, from the published Silmarillion, there's no, like, ah, these halls were originally made by my people before the interloper gnomes arrived. No, 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 none of that, right? Just, like, finders keepers, I got the treasure now, right? This is the first coming of the dwarves into these tales of the ancient world, and it is said that dwarves first spread west from Arid Luin, the Blue Mountains, into Beleriand after the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. Why? Because there was lots of open land after the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, right? They weren't going to expand before the Battle of Unnumbered Tears because there would have been lots of inconvenient elf lords to, to fight them. Right, but now not only are there fewer elf lords to get in their way as they expand, but there's also more rich realms of former, now dead elf lords lying open. Right? How fantastic! Um, okay. Anyway, so uh, all right, where were we? Battle. Okay. Now, Meme had found the halls and treasure of Nargothrond unguarded. And he took possession of them and sat there in joy, fingering the golden gems. Right? Meme the dwarf just won Powerball. He totally did. Right? Uh, And letting them run ever through his hands. And he bound them to himself with many spells. Uh, Those of you who remember, um, especially those of you who took the poetry class or who remember, uh, who've done Anglo Saxon stuff, maybe with Tom Shippey, may also remember the poem, The Horde. Um, and the dwarf that we get, uh, who's always letting the the gold run through his fingers, and, and it's, meme sounds a heck of a lot like the dwarf uh, in that poem, the horde. Anyway, okay, uh, so he's binding the 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 treasure to him with spells, but the folk of meme were few, and the outlaws filled with the lust of the treasure slew them. Though Hurin would have stayed them, and at his death, meme cursed the gold. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, Michael, you're right. This does make Meme seem more dragonish since he is alone, right? He's not. He doesn't seem to have come with a whole clan of uh, dwarves, but just uh, him alone. Yeah, I mean, it would be like, you know, I don't know. It'd be kind of like claiming a whole mountain with like twelve followers and saying like, "I am king," right? It'd be a little almost like that. Um. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, the folk of Meme were few. Yeah, he's not totally alone, but there aren't that many. Um, what do we see here? What picture do we get of dwarfs? Now, here's the thing. 1930. 1930. This is the same time he is writing The Hobbit, right? <clears throat> the first time lovers of The Hobbit go back and read the early Silmarillion stories, they are usually shocked, right? We have been in the past shocked at the depiction of the dwarves, right? We're like, whoa, these guys, this this uh, this ain't no Thorin Oakenshield, Right? This is, you know, you're, if you've got Gimli in your mind, 
you're going to be disappointed when you meet the dwarves in Tolkien's older works, right? By the time, certainly by the time we get to the Lord of the Rings and to, you know, the appendix, um, uh, you know, the, the, the Durin's folk appendix, we, um, we're in a different place, right? The dwarves don't sound the same anymore. Um, they're not allied with Morgoth. They're not playing both sides. They're not um, just profiteering. They're not um, callous and crude. So, okay, so, so again, the first step is to kind of be shocked, right, about the old dwarves and to just kind of, you know, cluck your tongue and say, man, those dwarves sure came a long way, right? Tolkien's ideas about dwarves sure did a 180, didn't they? I mean, wow. The gap between the early Silmarillions, like the dwarves in the Book of Lost Tales, and the dwarves in The Hobbit, it's like night and day, right? Is it? 1930. This is 1930. He's writing The Hobbit now. Meme is Thorin's contemporary, okay, in Tolkien's mind. This is not a question of, like, ah, uh, yeah, a decade ago, I used to write just kind of kind of simplistic, uh, you know, kind of sinister-ish, selfish, greedy, um, weapon-crafting Norse dwarves, Tolkien says to himself. But I'm going to do something different now, right? Um... But that's not, that's not how it actually happened, right? At the same time that he's writing Bilbo and Thorin's story, he's writing Meme and Hurin's story here in the Quinta. Okay? They're contemporaries. Um, but surely, you know... But it is night and day, though, right? I mean, so it's just like, okay, so he's telling the one story about good dwarves and the other story about bad dwarves. Right? Surely? Right? No, I don't think so. Um, my my own reactions kind of go something like this. My first reaction is to say, yeah, but Thorin's different, right? Thorin and company are different from these nasty, profiteering, calculating dwarves, right? They're, like, noble and stuff. And then I reread this stuff, especially all this stuff in the Quinta, about the playing both sides and the meme the profiteer and and all this stuff, and they're paying more attention to trade and bartering and all that thing, and then I, I go back to The Hobbit, and these lines keep popping up, right? Um, remember what are they on about at the beginning? Chapter 1 of The Hobbit? What are the dwarves on about? They're not about establishing their kingdom. Right? And I've talked about this a lot. Lots of people have talked about this a lot. Right? That story grows. It's not until chapter 10. Not until they get to Lake Town. Right? That we're getting like, I am Thorin, son of Thran, son of Thror, king under the mountain. I return. Right? That, uh, the, the, the narrative of the return of the king under the mountain. That's not the story. Not in chapter 1. That's not the story. Chapter one, the story is the pale enchanted gold, Tom. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we want, and Nick, exactly good revenge. As Arthur says, loot and revenge. That's exactly what they're on about, right? We have treasure, and by golly, that's our treasure. And this dragon has taken it away. 
we want our treasure back and we want to bring our curses home to Smaug. Right? Um, and the, 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 they, they want to bring our curses home to Smaug. They've already cursed Smaug. Have they cursed the treasure? Right? Um, you know, this idea of cursed treasure, Tolkien loved this idea of cursed treasure. It pops up all the time. Right? Um, so is Smaug already cursed? but they just haven't managed to bring the curse home to him yet? I mean, there's almost that implication. What do they do when they find treasure? They do find treasure, right? In chapter 2, in the troll's lair. What do they do when they find treasure? Finders keepers, right? They claim it for themselves, they hide it, and bury it, and put a spell on it to prevent anybody else claiming it. Yes, they curse it. Exactly. They put it in a hole and they curse it. That's exactly what the dwarves do. Chapter 2 of The Hobbit, right? Remember what Smaug, the uncomfortable thing that Smaug says to Bilbo, right? The idea that Smaug, the ideas that Smaug plants in his mind, right? Did the dwarves know all along that you couldn't possibly bring? They're promising you one thirteenth share of the, one fourteenth share of the treasure and knowing all along that you could not possibly bring one-fourteenth of the treasure back home to Bag End with you, so that, in fact, they were intending to swindle you all along, right? And even the more dark hint that Smaug makes, that if they, he escapes with his life, right, he'll be lucky. And Bilbo doesn't want to believe it, right? But he can't deny that it kind of looks plausible. Right, um, and uh, remember the narrator's near confirmation of it. Right, many dwarves are pretty bad lots, right? But some of them are decent enough folk, like Thorin and company. If you don't expect too much, right? There it is. Dwarves are not heroes. Dwarves are not heroes. The narrator of the Hobbit tells us, right? They're not noble. They are, you know, they're shrewd folk with a very good idea of the of the of the worth of money, right? Even the references that like Thorin makes to, uh, you know, how he says, you know, how dragons uh, always know the um, the 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 market value, the current market value, right, of the treasure. Spoken like a merchant, right? Um, uh, you know that's like that's his own, that's his uh, his own terminology, right? Anyway, um, so are the dwarves in the Hobbit night and day different from these dwarves? No, they're not night and day different from these dwarves. Um, they're not so far away, I think, at all as it might seem. Um, think about, of course the culmination, Thorin, and the dragon sickness, um, it begins to sound... Oh, by the way, uh, more on the cursing of uh, the horde, the actual Smaug's horde. Um, This is suggested by the the picture, the conversation, the famous conversations with Smaug uh, uh, painting that Tolkien did. Um, If you look like uh, the runes on the urn, Right, they get it, it. It's 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 showing. This is the mark of Thran and Thror, 
um, that they've placed upon what it, what look what is a big pot of gold, right? And it's not explicit, but the implication it's you know it sounds like what they did back in chapter two, right? That this is this is claiming it. Right? This is not just putting their name on it, like you know, you know, like writing your name on your underwear or something. This is. You know, it's like it's naming it to themselves, right? This is the gold of Thror, king under the mountain. Don't touch, or something terrible will happen to you. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, um, so okay. Think about Thorin and the dragon sickness at the end of the Hobbit, right? If we allow ourselves to think of Thorin as noble and heroic, the dragon sickness at the end is a fall, right? It's tragic. Something so good and so noble to fall so low, right? But I don't think that's the only way to read that passage. Again, coming at it from the point of view of the Quenta, which he was writing at the same time. Um, uh, Thorin's dragon sickness begins to look a little different, right? That is, we, like Bilbo, are disappointed at Thorin's reaction. When Thorin responds to Bard's terms, right, to Bard's proposal made at the gates, um, Bilbo thinks they're very reasonable and that Thorin is going to recognize the reasonableness of them, right? But he doesn't. Is this Thorin falling from his former uh, state of nobility, for which we have what evidence, exactly, in the text? Um, Or is this merely Thorin not living up to, Thorin falling short of what we and Bilbo want to believe of him and hope for him, right? Really... Thorin's dragon sickness, remember how dragon-like dwarves are in general, right? This is not necessarily Thorin falling away from dwarfishness and into dragonishness. This is just Thorin being really dwarfish, in fact. Um, uh, It's kind of mainstream dwarf. He's just acting like meme, really. In fact... Almost exactly like Meme, right? Squatting on an unclaimed pile of treasure. His family's treasure. He's got much more right to it than Meme, right? And yet, the parallel is pretty close, right? Um, In other words, what this potentially does is opens up a whole new way of looking at The Hobbit. In fact, to me, it opens up a symmetry, another symmetry. There are a whole bunch of symmetrical things going on in The Hobbit. The, the, you know, there and back again, right? Um, but think about it. At the beginning of the story, we have Bilbo being very hobbitish, right? Exceptionally hobbitish. Hobbitish to a fault, right? Bilbo collapsing on his hearth rug, shouting, struck by lightning, struck by lightning, is Bilbo at his most hobbitish. And he is taken out of himself over the course of the rest of the story. At the end of the story, we get Thorin being exceptionally dwarfish, right? So perhaps 
Thorin in his sharp dealings and his attempt to, you know, bring in his kinsmen to come and, and fight to reclaim the Arkenstone and to uh and to, to keep all of his treasure without sharing even the bits of his treasure of the treasure that he's currently claiming, which rightfully belongs to the people out there. Um uh, he's just he's being exceptionally dwarfish. In that moment, Thorin is the sort of symmetrical equivalent to Bilbo on the hearth rug back in chapter one, right? Thorin also comes out of this and recognizes, you know, it puts uh, his deathbed speech in kind of a different light, right? This is a, this is not a, you know, I really lost it. And I, I totally, I'm kicking myself now for how I acted. I, I wasn't, I wasn't myself. I'm sorry. I'm better now. Right. Um, it's not that at all. It, instead, in this light, it's Thorin seeing a new light for the first time. Um, and that makes that scene, I think, p- perhaps even more powerful. Remember the Elven King's reaction, right? When Bilbo, after handing over the Arkenstone, it's like, I'm going to go back to Thorin, and the Elven King's like, are you sure that's a good idea? And he says, I know more about dwarves in general, perhaps, than you do. Right, I have more experience of dwarves than you do. Um, I think this is a really bad idea. Right. Um, in other words, the Elven King knows because he knows dwarves. Right. He, he's heard of Meme and all the rest of them. Right. He he knows how these dwarves are, and Thorin might not act as Bilbo hopes and expects he'll act, but he does act like the Elven King expects him uh, to to act. Um, it's all of a piece, right? It's not necessarily a tragic fall from a moral height. Thorin never had achieved that moral height. He never does achieve it until the end. I would still say that this is what makes his eucatastrophic throwing down of the wall and charging out into the battle so important, because in that moment, think about, contrast that with the dwarves, the Quenta dwarves in the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, Right? This is not Mr. I'm going to sit back and play both sides and I'm going to pitch in with the winner, right? No. The self-sacrifice and leadership that he shows, the true kingship that he shows in that moment, that's the moment when Thorin really transcends the sort of -of run-of-the-mill level of dwarfishness, right? And it's expressed verbally um, and in Bilbo's terms on the deathbed speech, right? Um... Anyway, I just... Sorry, I know I'm talking about The Hobbit a whole lot here, but looking at the... I just couldn't get this out of my head when I was uh, thinking about these passages. And I've been... Those of you who have been studying this stuff with me for a long time will know I've talked around this many, many times, and I keep coming back to it. The reason I keep coming back to it is that I feel like I've never really articulated it fully and right. I keep I keep pecking at it, trying to trying to express it. Um, it, it started... Yeah, anyway, so so. thanks for your uh, patience with that, and I hope I didn't wreck The Hobbit uh, for you, but I find it's actually, it makes it into an even richer story. Um, and it's okay. Let me just say, don't think that I'm saying it's wrong to read The Hobbit as, like, Thorin as a noble hero who falls at the end. I think that's a perfectly fine uh, way to look at The Hobbit, because if you come to The Hobbit from The Lord of the Rings, right... Tolkien clearly does make the choice later on, through Gimli, 
especially, uh, but through Gimli and the, the, the lens that Gimli gives us on, on dwarves in general, plus what we get, uh, most especially what we get in the appendix, uh, in the Durin's Folk appendix, we get dwarves very much recontextualized and uh, given to us in a very different light. And therefore, there is no reason not to read The Hobbit from that point of view, right? That seems to be the point of view in which Tolkien wants us to read The Hobbit later on. But, um, so again, I'm not saying that it's wrong and that you can't think that way and you have to totally give that over, but it's an interesting kind of thought experiment to keep these the Quenta dwarves and meme foremost in your mind, the Quenta meme, and then go back and reread The Hobbit. And you'll see it sounds different. And there are exceptions. Yeah, Nancy, it makes Balin three times as cool a character, I think, right? You can see how it makes it seem even more. It's Balin who is countercultural, right? Balin is the one who is unlike the other dwarves. He's already unlike the other dwarves, right? Balin is already cooler than everybody else. Uh, I mean, there's just no two ways about the fact that Balin is the coolest dwarf in The Hobbit. But, um, but it, 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 it makes it even more striking, I think. Um, even the significance of, you know, Bilbo sitting there in his parlor with, you know, with his house full of dwarves. Not just full of strangers, not just full of outlandish non-hobbits, but dwarves, of all things, right? Um, it's nothing like as terrifying as having your hobbit hole full of orcs, but it's even more unsettling than having it full of humans, of big folk, right? These dwarves, you just don't know what to expect. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Anyway, okay. Okay. Sorry. All right. Enough of that. Let's go backwards a little bit. There's um, a couple other topics I want to hit on. One main one, which I, I still hope to finish tonight, and that is looking at the Quinta depiction of the Valar. So we're going to go backwards in time a little bit here. Back to Morgoth and the Noldor. Um, looking at... Uh, th- so the way that the Quenta presents Morgoth's temptations and the way that that conveys to us and kind of... No, not contextualizes. Conveys. Uh, I'll, I'll stick with conveys as a verb. Conveys um, the character of the Valar to us. I'll show you what I mean. Okay, so context, just to recall. Um... Most fair of all was Morgoth to the elves, and he aided them in many works, if they would let him. The people, This is, of course, after the unchaining. The people of Ing, the Quindi, held him in suspicion, for Olmo had warned them, and they had heeded his words. But the gnomes took delight in the many things of hidden and secret wisdom that he could tell to them, and some hearkened to things which it had been better that they had never heard. So we, re- so we see that the, 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 the initial connection here between Morgoth and the Noldor is in their similar relationship with wisdom, right? And remember, we've talked about wisdom, uh, which wisdom in the sketch and in the Quenta, which seems to mean more often than otherwise uh, skill and craftiness 
and you know the, the, the skill and the uh, skill in the making of things rather than um, wisdom in, in 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 sort of the broader sense. So the things of hidden and secret wisdom, um, that's maybe even I mean that could you could translate even that into something like uh, uh, they took delight in the 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 many like secret and unknown like techniques that he taught them for making stuff right you know he taught them just as like Fanor has found uh, the secret of how to to you know, encapsulate to, to you know to imprison the light of the trees, right? That was a, a piece of uh, hidden and secret wisdom that Fanor came up with. Well, there's other elements of hidden and secret wisdom, you know, things like how to make a palantir, for instance. That's a a piece of hidden and secret wisdom of this particular kind, right? Um, okay, so that that seems to be Gwendolyn. My understanding, anyway, of the sort of things that he's telling them here. Um, so he's telling them hidden and secret wisdom. Um, but they hearken to things that it would have been better that they never heard. So we we get it. We the initial context that we get for this is their sort of vulnerability to this particular kind of temptation, right? Their desire to learn and to know more, and how this is uh, setting them up. But that's not the whole story, right? Look, we get instead the lies that he actually tells. Often he would whisper that the gods had brought the Eldar to Valinor, but out of jealousy, for fear their marvelous skill and beauty and their magic should grow too strong for them as they waxed and spread over the wide lands of the world. Visions he would set before them of mighty realm, of the mighty realms they might have ruled in power and freedom in the east. In those days, moreover, the Valar knew of the coming of men that were to be, but the elves knew not of this, for the gods had not revealed it and the time was not yet near. But Morgoth spoke in secret to the elves of mortals, though little of the truth he knew or cared. Manwe alone knew aught clearly of the mind of Iluvatar concerning men, and ever has he been their friend. Yet Morgoth whispered that the gods kept the Eldar captive so that men coming should defraud them of their kingdoms, for the weaker race of mortals would be more easily swayed by them. Little truth was there in this, and little have the Valar ever prevailed to sway the wills or fates of men, and least of all to good. Okay. Um, Sorry, I'm thinking for a second. A couple of you are asking the word jealousy. We talked about jealousy in the modern sense, uh, in which it's essentially a synonym for envy, and in the older sense, in which it means something different, uh, protectiveness of your own. Um, so the question was, how is is the word jealousy? It's it does kind of sound like the modern usage here, but I still doubt it. Um, I would be very surprised to see Tolkien ever use the word jealous in the modern sense. Mostly because the modern sense is a confusion. Um, jealousy is not, an, is not a synonym of envy, and the distinction between jealousy and envy is one that I can't imagine. I can't imagine Tolkien blurring that moral line. Um, uh, the modern use of, of jealousy is a confusion of thought, and it's one of those examples of the way in which 
in modern usage, an older word is being misused and therefore its significance lost. There is no distinction now in modern usage between envy and jealousy, and that's a useful distinction. That's a distinction that, you know, our, our language is now the poorer for that loss. Um, I can't imagine Tolkien not being very sensitive to that fact. Very hard for me to imagine him ever using it in that sense. Um, no, Arthur, not even Melkor would use it, because Tolkien wouldn't have him use it, because it's not Melkor speaking. It's, it's, it's Tolkien, the narrator, speaking uh, and, and paraphrasing Melkor's thought here. No, I don't believe it. Because um, notice, it's, he doesn't say, out of jealousy of their marvelous skill and beauty. That would be the modern sense. But out of jealousy, for fear their marvelous skill and beauty and their magic should grow too strong for them. Right? So what are they jealous of? They're still jealous of their own power. Right? They're jealous of their own power. They fear that the elves are going to become so great and strong that the, the, they will not be able to control the elves. And the elves will take the power and sort of claim the planet for their own, and the Valar are going to lose control. Right? Them being jealous of their own power, they are fearful of the marvelous skill and beauty. So I'm pretty sure that that's still the older, the older sense. Um, okay, now, what do we learn about the Valar here, in this passage? So I want to talk about, uh, you know, I said, I want to talk about the uh, Morgoth temptation of the Noldor, uh, uh, pardon me, <clears throat> the Noldoli, um, uh, excuse me, that is to say, the gnomes, um, and of course, we learn something about Morgoth, and we learn something about the gnomes, but but we learn something of the Valar too, right? Um, yeah, Peter, that last sentence is really fascinating, right? Um, uh, he's uh, Peter Ribsky says he's particularly struck by the last sentence. It suggests that the Valar were more easily able to sway the wills of men to evil then to good, right? Little truth was there in this, and little have the Valar ever prevailed to sway the wills or fates of men, and least of all, to good, right? So yeah, so, so yeah, sometimes they succeed in swaying the wills of men to evil, I guess, right? Um, as a qualification, uh, Peter, here's how that last sentence strikes me. Sentence before. Morgoth claims the Valar are keeping the Eldar captive so that men will inherit the Hitherlands, right? Right. They're going to inherit the lands that the elves should have inherited, right? Why? What's the Valar's motivation to have men rule the world where the elves would otherwise be ruling it? Why? For the weaker race of mortals would be more easily swayed by them. That's why. That's why the Valar imprisoned the elves and left the humans free so that the humans would rule instead of the elves because humans are easier to manipulate, and thus can the Valar retain their grip on their own power and control. Okay? And then we get the correction. Little truth was there in this. And I'm like, whew! Oh, I'm glad to hear that wasn't true, because that'd be awful. Right? If that's what the Valar were doing, it's awful. Um, little truth was there in this. And little have the Valar ever prevailed to sway the wills or fates of men. And I'm like, wait. Um, <laughs> just, I assume there's also little truth in the idea that they're keeping 
the elves prisoner in order to allow humans to rule the world, right? Uh, but it's... Um, do you see what I mean? It's like that last sentence. You know, he's just said, they're doing this terrible thing to the elves with this motivation. Um, and then the qualification says, but that's not true. That wasn't their motivation. And anyway, it didn't work. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, seriously? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, again, I know, I'm not suggesting that I think it really, it really means that, um, uh, it, it really means that, uh, the Valar actually were doing that, and his accusation is completely just. It's just, I, Peter, I always find that last sentence really striking, because as, uh, as contradictions and, uh, and, you know, sort of validations of the Valar are concerned, it's pretty flimsy. It's pretty half-hearted. Um, uh, yeah, again, I, I don't think it really means, no, that's not why they did it, but it, it kind of almost sounds like that. Anyway, okay. Let's let's do this in stepwise fashion. First, what exactly does Morgoth accuse the Valar of doing? What is what exactly does he accuse the Valar of doing? List for me his accusations against the Valar. I've already mentioned one, right? He he accuses them of um he accuses them of imprisoning the elves so that um, men would inherit the great lands, the hither lands. What else? What else does he accuse them of? It's not a trick question. People people are either writing a lot or uh, nervous to commit themselves. Okay, good. Kate wanting to control both elves and men. Yes. Yes. Uh, good. As Nancy said, wanting to keep the elves under their thumbs. That's why they're bringing them in, right? It's two reasons, right? First, they're bringing in because they don't want the elves to rule the world. Right? They're wanting to keep the rule of the world to themselves so they remove the elves out of the world, right? Therefore, the elves aren't going to be ruling it. And also, by keeping them close, they're able to keep them down better, right? Okay. Good. What else? Good. James keeping. Uh, James Stevens says keeping truths from the elves. Yeah, lying to them, right? Um, they d- were well, not lying, but concealing these things from them, right? They didn't tell them even that the humans were coming, right? Now, what do we learn about the Valar? How do we respond? to these accusations. Good. Now, of course, Kate Neville points out that, of course, Morgoth accuses the Valor of everything he is doing or plans to do. Uh, Yes, he wants to rule the world. He is the one who is jealous of the rule of the world, right? And who does not want to share it, uh, and who fears the marvelous skill and beauty and magic of the elves, lest they should grow too strong for him and wax and spread over the wide realms of the land. He doesn't want any of that. Right, uh, and um, uh, and this this image of uh, of them uh, of you know thinking he can might more easily sway the weaker race of mortals, right? That kind of sounds familiar, right? Um,
Why don't the gnomes see through these lies? What's the problem here? Exactly, Peter. There is certainly truth in Morgoth's accusations. There's truth in almost all of their accusations. None of them are totally true. <clears throat> well, one of them is. Right? Um, that is, that they've concealed from elves the coming of men. No. Oh. Yeah, and we did do that. That's true enough. Um, yeah, uh, we can see how Morgoth's twisting the truth, and sometimes tragically twisting the truth. Um, yes, you're right, Peter. The Valar did bring the elves to Valinor out of jealousy, right? Not jealousy of the world to protect it from the elves, but jealousy of the elves to protect them from the world, right? their desire to shelter and protect the elves, their jealousy of the elves, in that sense, in that older sense, right? Their protectiveness is what we led them to bring them there. And so that's being that's being twisted, but but yes. So, Kate, yeah, absolutely, the Valar are not being totally open with the elves, right? They have not told them about the coming of men, and they seem to have made no provision on that. Um, uh, they... Um, they are jealous. Sure, they're jealous. Right? Um, what about um, visions he would set before them of the mighty realms they might have ruled in power and freedom in the East? And the Valar have brought them to Valinor to prevent them from waxing and spreading over the wide lands of the world. Uncomfortably, that's kind of true, too. Right? Not for a bad reason. Right? But, yeah. Um, it... The coming of the elves... The bringing of the elves to Valinor does not, in fact, seem like a good idea. The elves were supposed to live in the world and rule it and order it and heal it. Um... They were supposed to wax and spread over the wide lands of the world. That kind of seemed to be the plan. Um, and the removal of the elves from the world... I mean, Remember we looked at this before? Remember the, um, a couple classes ago, we were looking at this, uh, this kind of divide in the elves, right? How on the one hand, they have this... Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the high elves, the... Quendi slash Lindar slash Vanyar eventually, um, who go with Manwe and Varda, and they leave uh, Kor, and they go to live on the uh, the slopes of uh, Teniquitil, and um, so they kind of retreat more and more away from the world and become more and more content living in Valinor. Um, but at the same time, we we see, although the High Elves seem to kind of become conditioned to that over time. Um, the Kendi do, they initially, neither they nor any of the other elves 
are like they 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 need to breathe the air of the outer lands. That's still in the published Silmarillion, the whole breathing of the air of the outer lands thing, um, and. Uh, so that's why the Calakirian is made. That's why the 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 pass, the gap in the in the mountains, um, is made, which allows the light to spill out. And even that image, right? The fact that the elves cannot live contentedly in Valinor one hundred percent of the time, but need to move back towards and see the outer lands and see the stars and breathe that air. The fact that they this is needful to them also has the side effect of allowing the only bit of the light of the trees that ever will spill out into the world to spill out into the world, right? It's like a little image of what might have been, almost. The elves are supposed to be helping to bring light and life to the world, um, not to be sheltered from it and uh, locked away from it. Anyway, this all seems... um, that seems pretty cool. But again, the Valar have failed in that and have opened themselves up. These accusations that he's making would not stick so closely if they weren't so close to being true. Yes, the elves, the Valar have in fact, in a sense, stunted the elves by bringing them to live in Valinor, prevented them from fulfilling their destiny, right? Um, That's true. Um, They have not said anything about men, and it looks like they're raising up men to supplant them, and the elves are going to be removed from the world, and men are going to allowed to have dominion over the world. Yes, that will, in fact, come to pass, right? Um... The way that all of this stuff is uh, is is being, you know, th- taking yes, exactly, Gwendolyn, taking what is and twisting it masterfully is very much what we see Morgoth doing here. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Roy says everything Morgoth says turns out to be true, except for the last qualification. Yeah, mostly true, right? Again, you could say at the same time that he's turning it on its head, right? Um, uh, that he's taking what was done for love of them. And uh, and 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 turning it around to make it look like it, it's being done out of greed and and competition, um, but uh, but but yeah. And Roy says maybe Melkor knew the music even better than the Valar. Yeah, he does have some access to the to the music, right? He knew the music. He rebelled against it, uh, but he was there. He knows what how things. That's why I would say he knows about the coming of men, right? Um. Well, let's look at the dissension of the gnomes as we move forward. Um, uh, two more slides on this, and then I think I'll let you go. So, here's the conflict between Feanor and Fingolfin. Proud were the sons of Finn, and the proudest Feanor. Lying, Morgoth said to him that Fingolfin and his sons were plotting to usurp the leadership of Feanor and his sons, and supplant them in the favor of their father and of the gods. Of these words were quarrels born between the children of Finn, and of those quarrels came the end of the high days of Valinor and the evening of its ancient glory. And Feanor spoke words of rebellion against the gods, and plotted to depart from Valinor back into the outer world and deliver the gnomes, as he said, from thraldom. Notice these ideas, the contention between Fingolfin and Feanor, and the rebellion of Feanor, advance more quickly and, in a sense, more radically 
than we see in the published Silmarillion. Remember how much less justification uh, for um, uh, for any of this than there is in the published Silmarillion. We don't get the the stepmom thing going on in this version, right? The stepmom thing will come later. Um, so there is no the stepmom thing created a natural gap, right? A natural distinction, um, uh, a, a natural opportunity for competition between Fingolfin and Feanor. They're just sons of Finn, right? They're just brothers. Um, there's no, in that sense, there's no justification. There's no reason for them to argue with with each other. So their arguments are sort of the the emphasis on their it's 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 a it's a bigger deal in the Quenta. Similarly, Fanor's words of rebellion, right, plotting to depart from Valinor back into the outer world and deliver the gnomes from thraldom. That's how Fanor talks. You know, in the meeting on Cord by torchlight, right after the darkening of Valinor, but that's after the Silmarils have been taken. That's that's after Finn is dead. That's after you know he's speaking in grief and 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 uh, he's real upset at that point, right? And but that's not here, right? Um, he becomes convinced that the gnomes are being held as slaves before anything bad happens. In fact, um. So, again, that's another interesting... So we see these things taking root. Um, There's a sense in which... Okay, this is going to be really clumsy. One of the ways in which the earlier Silmarillion stuff is different from the published Silmarillion is that almost everybody's worse, (laughs) if you see what I mean. Um... The Valar, their mistakes are highlighted more strongly. Uh, the Noldor are less tragic and more corruptible. I mean, like in this passage, they're just they're contentious and seditious with comparatively little prompting. They have very little excuse for this. Um, yeah. Oh, Arthur. Uh, Arthur's asking a question about uh, li- it's, lying is not an adjective. Yes, lying, comma, Morgoth said to him that Fingolfin and his sons... Yeah, that's that's definitely how I take that. I'm not lying Morgoth, um, as opposed to the other Morgoth. Um, you know, the the truthful one. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's not, I, I, don't, I don't think that's an adjective. Um, here's another thing. Again, thinking about sort of the essence of elves, or the fate of elves... Um, in the end, it was to put. It was put to the vote of the assembly. So this is this is when Feanor is there with the torches, and they're all deciding. And moved by the potent words of Feanor, the gnomes decided to depart. But the gnomes of Toon would not renounce the kingship of Fingolfin, and as two divided hosts, therefore, they set forth. One under Fingolfin, who with his sons yielded to the general voice against their wisdom, because they would not desert their people. The other under Feanor. Some remained behind. Those were the gnomes who were with the Quendi upon Tinbrenting. It was long ere they came back into this tale of the wars and wanderings of their people. Now, um, in the published Silmarillion, it says that one-tenth of the Noldor didn't leave Valinor. Some of them stayed. About a tenth of them stayed. So not that many, but some of them did. But we're not told anything. We know that, that Finarfin 
is going to be one of them. He doesn't stay, but he comes back right away, right? Um, he's um, so he and his and his people, not his children, but he and 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 others of his people are uh, um, are, cho- are choosing to remain. But notice the distinction that we get in the Quinta. It's not by family or anything else that who stays. Nobody stays except for the gnomes who were with the Quendi upon Tinbrinting. Remember, during the Darkening, there was a festival going on. That's not why the Darkening was timed in that way, but there was, and, and it was not true that everybody in Valmar, like Valmar was all deserted because they were all off at the festival, right? And then Toon was empty. That wasn't the case, right? Um, there was a festival going on, and there were the Quendi and some of the gnomes were up on Tinbrenting having this festival with Manway and Varda, right? So they had ascended the Holy Mountain and were having this festival when the Darkening happened. Some of them were down in tune. Most of them were down in tune. Some of them were up there. Those that were up with the Quendi stay, and the rest of them leave. In other words, those who are participating in this religious festival with Manway and Varda are the ones who stayed. Um... And the others are the ones who fall. I, they do, you know. We get the, we get the kinslaying and all, all, you know, all kinds of bad things that happen to them afterwards. Um, this brings me back to that question of like the two, the two different impulses that we see in the elves. The one towards, towards Middle Earth, right? That being drawn towards that desire for even that need for. Middle-earth, right? And how being in Valinor is not, it is not good for them always to be in Valinor. They, they, they seem to, you know, they, they're, they're, they're programmed to want to be in Middle-earth. There's that impulse. But there's also the, the, the Quendi, the Vanyar impulse. That is to retreat from the world and to go up on the Holy Mountain and hang out with Manway and Varda and not come down anymore, right? And leave Toon behind. Um, that, um, Oh, yeah, Gwendolyn Finarfin is here. He's just still named Finrod, which is confusing because Finrod is his son. So Felagund and Finrod are two different people. Um, Finarfin does not receive the name Finarfin until quite late, like 1960-ish. Um, in fact, it's still true in The Lord of the Rings. Remember when uh, when Frodo meets Gildor and Glorian in Chapter 3 of The Fellowship of the Ring? And you may remember that Gildor says, I am Gildor and Glorian of the House of Finrod. That means of the House of Finarfin, is what he's saying. Um, as we would say in modern Silmarillion terms. The name Finrod um, that appears in The Lord of the Rings still was still the name of the third son of Finway um, at the time of the writing of, uh, of, of The Lord of the Rings. So, <clears throat> so yeah, Finarfin is there. He's just not, not, uh, not, not by that name. Um, but uh, anyway, so, so as I was saying, these two impulses in the elves, I'm tempted to say that the direction that the that those elves who shall be called the Vanyar uh, make. That move that they make up into Tinbrenting, I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't think it's a weakness. I don't think it's an abandonment or an abdication of their role in Middle-earth. I think it may well be sort of the end goal, in a sense. But 
cuts off the middle. That might not make any sense. That is, ultimately, I think the kind of communion with the Valar that the Vanyar achieve on on uh, on uh, uh, Teniquito is sort of the final goal of the elves and where they're supposed to end up. But they're supposed to do stuff along the way. Um, and even the Vanyar, of course, do the faring forth, and they go off to fight the War of Wrath uh, eventually. Um, even they have a job to do that involves Middle-earth. Um, so I, that's anyway, I, this is, that's me just kind of trying to put together these things and try to see what the text seems to be suggesting, how we kind of balance these different things that we see. Anyway, that's what I'm going with for now. Um, let me, uh, let's see, let me see. Yeah, I think we're going to stop there for tonight. Um, I'm relatively close to the end of, uh, what, 13 slides? That's not bad. Um, all right, next time, of course, we're going to finish the Quenta. Uh, next time we will we will bid a, a sad farewell to the Quenta uh, uh, next time. So um, I, I hope you'll get through the end. Of course, needless to say, I'm gonna be we're going to be interested to talk about the end of the Quenta, all of that last battle and Turin and Morgoth stuff, and see where we get in more importantly, how we get all that stuff and Turgon and what's up with Turgon and Olmo and everything else. We'll, so we'll come back and revisit those things and see how that stuff comes out in the Quinta next time. I also want to look at, pay, pay attention to both of the endings of the Baron and Luthien story. Um, that's a, one of the bits I didn't get to here tonight. Both the end of the Baron and Luthien story um, you know, the whole mortality business, how that's treated in the Quinta at the end of the Baron and Luthien section. Section 10, I think it is, or 9. Um, and then, uh, but I also want to look at when when Luthien gets the Silmaril, um, which I found a very striking, um, a, a, a very striking uh, 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 change in the Quinta from any of the former versions. Anyway, we're, we're going to look at that stuff too. And then uh, off towards Gondolin and the end. Thanks, everybody. Good night, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.